Well, when I was younger, I wanted to be an inventor for a long time. And uh, I would come up with all kinds of ideas and contraptions. My room when I was about 11 or 12 years old was filled with all kinds of things I'd invented. Uh, I had strings attached to my light switches to automate them. Uh, my alarm clock hung from a pulley from the ceiling, so I had to get up to turn it off. Um, and, but it drove my mom nuts. I mean, you walked into my room and it was just mayhem of all these like gadgets and contraptions. But my dad, he really encouraged this. My dad was a businessman and he saw this entrepreneurial spirit in me and this innovativeness, and he really encouraged it. And he told me, keep it going, and you know, the best ideas, Ashley, are the ones that fill a need or solve a problem. Those are the best ideas. And so I took that to heart and I started looking around, like where are the needs? What do we need that we do not have right now? What are the problems that we do not have a solution for right now? And being 11 years old, uh, my biggest problem at the time was that I liked to talk on my telephone in my bedroom, but my telephone was close to the wall and I liked to walk as I talked. I wasn't one of these teenagers that like laid on the bed upside down talking to their friends that you see in the movies. I liked to walk and to talk. And so my first solution was to get an extra long cord that went to the jack from the phone to pull it away from the wall. And then I got one of the extra long spiral cords for the receiver. And that kind of worked. I would walk and the phone would kind of bump along the carpet, but it would tip over and then depress the button and disconnect my call. That was annoying for an 11-year-old girl. So, what was my solution? I had to come up with a solution. So I got out my super glue, and I got out four Lego swivel wheels. And I glued the Lego wheels to the bottom of the phone. And so now when I walked and I talked, the phone followed me like a little puppy dog, and I could turn and it would turn, and it worked. It didn't tip over anymore. It didn't connect my, or disconnect my phone calls. And my friends would come over and they saw my mobile phone, and uh, they were like, that is so cool. And they went home and they started gluing Lego wheels to their phones as well. So it was really catching on. It was, it was really the hot thing at the time. But soon after, the cordless phone came out. And I remember getting our first cordless phone as a family. My dad called it the Star Wars phone. I mean, that's how like, of a big deal it was in our home. He's like, where's the Star Wars phone? And you know, now you know we carry around these mini computers in our pockets. So, the problem that I had was a temporary one, and the solution that I came up with was a temporary solution. And when I really think about my mobile phone, it really only reached a small circle of my friends at the time who thought it was a great idea. Well, we cannot say that about the gospel, can we? The gospel is something everybody needs, and the gospel solves a problem that every single person has. And the gospel's not going to be outdated by something better, that, something better that comes along because it's eternal. It's not temporal. And as Christians, we're called to share this message, to get it out to as many people as possible, much like advertisers do with their products, right? Advertisers get it on a TV, they get it on their, their um, ads, and they say, look at this product, look how great it is, look what it's going to do for you, buy it now, buy it now, buy it now. And they want to get it in front of as many faces as possible. And we in Christ, as Christians are to do the same. If everyone needs to hear it, then we need to share it with as many people as we can. So how can we effectively get this message out to the people around us? Well, in our passage today, Paul's going to give us some specific instructions on how we can be used by God to not only get this message out, but to draw people 
to him. But if we fail to follow these instructions, we're going to be missing out on a precious opportunity of participating in God's salvation plan. And this should really motivate us to take action today. Well, last week, we heard from Amanda on the topic of prayer and how we can advance the gospel starting with prayer. Uh, we know that God does the saving, right? We bring nothing to the table. We have to go to God. We have to ask God for the open doors to share the gospel. We have to go to God and ask for the right words as we share the gospel, as Amanda covered last week. But this week's passage, Paul puts a spotlight um, on a more direct way that we are to fill in advancing the gospel. Uh, when he opens those doors, he gives us a way that we can walk through successfully. And outside of just praying from our comfort of our quiet time nook, we are to get up and take that active role in pointing people to Jesus. So let's read our passage that we studied this week, Colossians 4, verses 5 through 6. Two short verses, but I think you can agree with me, especially if you did the study, they are just jam-packed with things that we are to do and to consider. So Colossians 4, verses 5 through 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Well, Paul lays out these step-by-step -step instructions for us this morning on how we are to engage with people who are outside the Christian faith. He literally calls them outsiders. And we may don't, don't use that term much anymore, but we might use the term like uh, non-believer, unsaved, unchurched. Uh, and Paul directs the Colossians to walk in wisdom toward these outsiders. Because much like us, they are living among people who do not believe in the Christian faith. They are living among Jews who were still under Mosaic law. They were living among pagans who worshipped other gods and polytheists who worshipped multiple gods, much like us who live among people who don't believe in God at all or believe in different faiths. They would be rubbing elbows with these people, inevitably. And Paul gives us two very specific ways we can walk wisely among these outsiders. And the first one we find is in verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Point number one on your outline Use your time wisely. Use your time wisely. Well, Paul uses that word walk. Um, and looking at other translations, uh, they translate it as conduct, live, act. But I really like that word walk because truly you can conduct and live and act from your living room couch, but you got to get up if you're going to walk. It really prompts us to action. And the Colossians weren't, uh, this wasn't a foreign word for them. Paul uses it over and over in Colossians, and you see it throughout the Bible. But in Colossians 2.7, he reminds the Colossians, Therefore, as you received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. As our work, world grows darker by the day, and sometimes I feel like it's growing darker by the hour, uh, we need to be walking in Christ. We need to be walking wisely. And we need to be standing out among the people that are around us. But this doesn't just mean in what we believe. Paul here is talking about not the facts of Christianity, but the effects that Christianity should have on these people's lives. It's a changed life that people would see. It's that departure from worldly living, worldly wisdom, to godly living and godly wisdom because the mystery of Christ has been revealed to them. 
He talked about this back in Colossians 1 at the beginning of our study. Colossians 1, verses 26 through 27. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his, this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope and glory. This mystery of salvation, it was revealed to the Colossians, and it's been revealed to us if we are truly Christians. And with this wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit, it's going to guide us to walk with Christ and to walk in wisdom in this world. And our lives should stand out even more against the darkness if we're keeping in step. But what should people see? What should these outsiders see in us if they are to be observing us? I mean, should they see people who just know a lot more about the Bible and go to church? Should they see people who are just um, make you know, more wise decisions with their lives as they, as they live them? Or should they maybe see uh, that we're more successful than other people? Uh, the things we do have more success. Well, James 3.17 gives us a glimpse of what godly wisdom should look like. James 3.17 says this, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That is quite the list of character traits I think we could all agree we would desire to have, especially as we talk about it in the context of sharing Jesus with others. I mean, if we're sharing Jesus with others, we want to be pure. We want to be peaceable, open to reason as we have a conversation with somebody else, impartial, sincere. I mean, these are good and useful things. I remember when I first witnessed somebody truly demonstrating this in life, and it was way before I was a Christian. I went to a memorial of a mother of my husband's friend. She had passed away from breast cancer, and we went to this memorial, and people got up and spoke, and the pastor got up and spoke, and then her best friend got up and spoke. And this woman got up, and she, she smiled the whole time, and she talked about how her friend was in the presence of Jesus, and how she was rejoicing because her friend was with Jesus. And the smile was just, it couldn't get bigger. And I sat there, and I was like, I want that. You know, how can she do that? And so being the bold person I am, I went up afterwards and I asked her. I was like, you know, I saw what you said, I heard what you said, and just how happy you are. You're, but your best friend's gone, aren't you sad? And she says, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to miss her, but I'm rejoicing because she's with her king. She surrendered her life to Christ. And she began to share the gospel with me. And at the time, I didn't have ears to hear, so it was like boom, boom over my head. Um, but looking back, I have to say, it was the first time I kind of dipped the toe into the pool of curiosity of Christianity, the very, very first time, just from this woman's witness. And if we're walking in wisdom, we can be that light in other people's lives as well. We can move people to be curious about Christ. We can move people to ask questions about Christ. We can move people to be drawn to Christ and then, Lord willing, surrender to Christ. We can do that. We can have a part in that. And that woman was walking wisely that day, and she was making the best use of her time. I mean, here she had this captive audience at a memorial. She had no idea who were believers and who weren't, but she took that time to talk about Jesus and glorify Jesus. And that was a great use of her time. So verse 5 says, making the best use of the time. Notice it doesn't say make good use of the time. It says the best use of the time. 
It's because that chasm between good and best, it is bridged with godly wisdom and discernment. We make choices every day between good and bad, right? We're trying to flush sin from our lives. We don't make the bad choices. We want to make the good choices. And that is all good. But it's making those decisions and those discernment between good and best that we see some big differences, especially when it comes to using the time that we've been given. So that, that, that phrase, making the best use of the time, it literally means to buy up the time, to redeem the time. The NIV and the NLT both translate it as making the most of every opportunity. And like we talked about last week, praying for those open doors, that's an opportunity to share the gospel. So once those doors are open, that's making the most of that opportunity. Uh, one commentator described it like snapping up every opportunity like you would a bargain, seeing it as valuable, something that you want. And then that, that notion of time that Paul is talking about, he's not talking about you know, how you spend your day every day. He's talking about the time. He's talking about the time between Christ's first coming and his return. It's the eschatological timeline that we are in right now. And if you've ever heard Pastor Mike talk about it, he uses a great analogy of the bus, right? It's the time in, in between these two times that we are to fill the bus. And once that last seat on the bus is full, the doors close and we all go home, right? But we don't know how long this time is. We don't know if there's 5 million seats left on that bus, 5,500, or five seats left on the bus. We have no idea. So we have to have that, that sense of urgency. We gotta snap up every opportunity. Like that commentator said, snapping up every opportunity like you would a bargain. Which reminds me of Costco. I love to buy clothes at Costco. So let's just say you came up to me and said, Ashley, I love that skirt you're wearing. Where did you get it? And I say, I got it at Costco yesterday for 20 bucks. Knowing what you know about Costco, if you wanted this skirt, would you wait until you ran out of paper towels to make that trip to Costco and get that skirt? No. Because we know that Costco, especially when it comes to their clothes, they sell these amazing things at amazing prices, and then it's, when they're out, they're out. It's gone. And then they don't order more. Like, it's just, it's gone forever. You can never, ever see it again. So you know if you want something from Costco, you've got to go and get it. If you wanted this skirt, you'd have to leave Bible study and head straight to Costco <laughs> And I didn't get this at Costco, but let's say I did, and get the skirt, right? You'd have to snatch up that opportunity. And that's how we need to treat the opportunities that God puts in front of us, buying up that time. We need to engage in people with people now that he puts in our path and just have that sense of urgency when it comes to the time. But what keeps us from doing that? Let's be honest. Let's look at what keeps us from doing that, what keeps us from snatching up those opportunities and making the best use of the time. Um, how can we maintain that sense of urgency? How can we be more alert to the doors that are open? And how can we be more willing to walk through the door when God opens it? Well, first we need to start by praying for the kingdom, praying for God's kingdom. In Matthew 6, Jesus talks about the model of prayer, uh, the Lord's prayer. And Many of you know it's not a prayer that we're to recite over and over again. It's a model for prayer. And that second category in the prayer is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we're to be praying this every day. And if we're praying this every day, it's going to move that timeline, that eschatological timeline, to the forefront of our minds. We're going to be thinking that time can be short every day as we're reminded as we pray for God's kingdom to come. 
And for those of you that are already doing that, ask yourself, how do I pray for this? Am I saying, Lord, please, your kingdom come in 5,000 years? No, right? You say your kingdom come now, like ASAP, tomorrow, today, whenever. We want it sooner, not later. We'll be more motivated to fill that kingdom. We keep that forefront of our mind. Number two, uh, eliminate distractions. We need to eliminate distractions. Um, Ask yourself how many opportunities you may have missed by just being distracted. Um, How many may you have missed uh, just by being buried in your phone? How many opportunities to talk to people have you missed by maybe just being so consumed with your to-do list and your errand list that you ran around to seven stores in one day, and at the end of the day, you couldn't think of one person that you noticed or even acknowledged throughout the day? You know, Matthew 9:36, Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And this is speaking to the harvest, which is the people that need to hear the gospel, and the laborers, the people that need to share the gospel with those people. So there's fewer of them than there are people that need to hear it. But even of those few people, how many of us are so distracted that we're not even doing the work that we're called to do? Number three, fight against fear. I mean, let's face it. It is the number one deterrent we have to not talking about Jesus with people is the fear. It's the fear of what people will think, the fear of what people will say, not knowing what to say, uh, a fear of the hostile response, if they should give it to you. I mean, it can be all-consuming. I mean, enough that we just walk away and the door closes, possibly forever. But 2 Timothy reminds us that we are not to fear. We are not to be people of fear. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7 through 8, says, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. It reminds me of Peter denying Christ three times. What was his motivation? He was motivated by fear. He didn't want to be counted among them because he knew there could be bad repercussions, and he feared that. We don't want to be fearful and ashamed of our Savior. So fight against that fear. And if that's not motivating enough, then let's consider that the God of the universe doesn't even need us to save people. We literally bring nothing to the table, right? He spoke and the world came to be. He spoke and Mount Everest appeared. Think about that. He spoke and the Pacific Ocean appeared. If he wants to take a heart of stone and change it into a heart of flesh, he can do it at any time, anytime he wants to, to any person he wants to. He does not need us. But what a privilege it is. Let's see it as a privilege that the God of the universe would even allow us to take part in his work to add souls to the kingdom. I mean, this is something we should be excited about to participate in. It's a privilege. Let's not fear it. Let's not blow it off. Let's be excited to be part of his beautiful salvation plan. But let's look back at our passage, verse 6 in our passage. Um, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. While God uses our lives to draw people to him, uh, inevitably, we're going to have to talk to those people, right? We're going to have to open our mouths and share Jesus with them. So point number two, use your words wisely. Use your words wisely. 
Scripture says so much about our words. We could probably be here for days, if not weeks, if we wanted to dive into every passage and every verse of Scripture that addresses our words, our speech, our tongues. I mean, God has a lot to say about it because God cares very much how we speak. He desires us to speak wisely uh, for his glory, but also for the benefit of others. And it's all over Scripture. And we see oftentimes um, wisdom and speech kind of paired together. Um, our beloved Proverbs 31 woman, she, of course, spoke wisely, right? Proverbs 31, verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Psalm 37, 30, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. Proverbs 16, 23, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness. To his lips. When we're engaging with others, we, we would all want that persuasiveness, right? That's something to be desired. How we use our words, it can really make or break how someone responds to what we are saying. It can either attract or it can deter someone from pursuing Christ. And Paul gives us specific ways we are to use our words when we are engaging with these outsiders and with others. Verse 6 again says, let your speech always be gracious. Gracious. So, uh, subpoint A: speak gracious words. We need to speak gracious words. And that word "gracious" it means merciful and kind. I mean, these are words that are just going to make that soft landing to those that hear, not one that skids to an abrupt stop, but one that's going to be pleasurable to those that hear. Um, and Paul says that we are to always be gracious right? Always be gracious. That means all the time. <laughs> that doesn't just mean when we are conversing with an outsider. That means all the time because these people outside the faith, they're watching us, but they're also listening. They're probably listening more than they're watching us, to be honest. Uh, they're listening to how we speak. They're listening to how we speak to our husbands. They're listening to how we speak to our children. They're listening to how we speak to our friends, the woman at the checkout, the grocery store, the person on the other end of your phone call in your earbud, they are listening. Ephesians 4.29 gives us some solid and wise advice and insight into what gracious speech does and does not look like. It's a familiar passage I'm sure you've read before. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul first starts talk, talk, that's talking to the Ephesians first about that corrupting talk. This is talk we should not have. This is, would be the opposite of gracious speech. Uh, things like unkind words, inappropriate, slander, gossip, uh, obscene or crude talk. These are things that, that tear down. These are things that corrupt and corrode, like rust. And you know, ladies, it's not just our audible words that we speak that people overhear. It can be the ones that we write, especially online with social media. That is part of our speech, right? So as we post things, as we share things, ask yourself, is, is Christ being reflected in this? Am I being gracious if I share this or write this? And if the answer is even a maybe, <laughs> but if it's a no, delete it, don't post it. Because we all have outsiders as you know, friends on social media, right? I have a ton of friends from high school and college that I know are not walking with the Lord. 
And so if we're posting one day a slanderous, you know, post about somebody or something, and then the next we share something about the gospel, I mean, what is that reflecting? So we need to pay attention to how we speak and how we write. Well, Ephesians 4.29 also addresses the speech that we should be using, the speech that's going to bring grace, right? Such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Wise words build up. They build up, they don't tear down. And scripture gives us so many examples of wise words bringing that grace to those who hear. Here's just a few. Uh, Proverbs 15.4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. Proverbs 16.24, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. I just love that I think of when I have a sore throat and I've taken like a tablespoon of honey and it's just that, that coating feeling. Our words can be like that to someone we're speaking to if we're speaking with grace. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That soft answer turning away wrath, I mean, if we are sharing the gospel with people, it can get heated, especially when you get to the topic of sin, the S word, Right? I mean, people do not react kindly to that. But what encouragement we find in Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath. Even if a conversation were to get heated, if we respond with grace and self-control, we quite possibly can have the power to calm or even quench that person's anger or hostility. And it reminds me of the people you see on the street sometimes wearing the sandwich boards. Have you ever seen uh, street evangelists wearing the sandwich boards? And they say things like, um, repent. Or spend eternity in hell, exclamation point, red letters, right? And I've seen these people, and I I know their intentions are good, and I, I look at that sign and I read it, and I think, well, it's not untrue. That statement's not true. It's not untrue. But what I do notice is that there's no crowd around those people, and in fact, people will go out of their way to avoid the sandwich board people. I've seen people jaywalk to cross the street to get away from a sandwich board person. Because it's not gracious. It's lacking context of the whole gospel, right? That's why here at Compass, we don't send people to the town center with sandwich boards. We send people out to the spectrum or door-to-door, and they have conversations with people one-on-one. They're answering questions and addressing concerns and addressing the individuals. And we see far more fruit from that. Well, the second type of speech tells, uh, that Paul tells the Colossians is speech that is seasoned with salt. Verse 6, again, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Letter B, if we want to use our words wisely, we need to include seasoned words. We need to include seasoned words. I love the show Chopped on Food Network. Any other fans? No? Oh, yeah, one. Yes, Stephanie. Uh, The show Chopped, it's a chef competition show. There's three chefs and there's three rounds. And each round, somebody gets chopped. They get kicked off, and you end up with one winner. And the challenge of this show is that they they start each round with a mystery box. And they open this box, and inside is this this, uh, group of ingredients that are usually pretty obscure. Many times they should not and never go together. And these chefs have to come up with a gourmet meal at like a five-star restaurant meal out of these ingredients. That's the challenge. And it's really amazing what these chefs come up with. I mean, I've watched them pair like rack of lamb and gummy bears, and it's like, wow, I would eat that. I would eat it. Um, 
But they, they finish their meal and they present it to the judges. And the judges first, they eat with their eyes first and they comment on you know, the innovativeness of the meal, the creativity of what they did with those ingredients, and then they taste it. And I've seen this happen numerous times. They'll taste it and then their face, the judge's face kind of falls solemn and they say, well, it's not seasoned correctly. You, you didn't salt this. You didn't put seasoning on it. And so it's just, it's just bland. And I would say nine times out of 10, that person gets they don't make it to the next round. And that's so unfortunate. We need to season our speech with salt, so to speak. And Jesus talks about how we are to be the salt and the earth, right? In Matthew 5, he talks about being the salt and light of the earth, that we are to represent that. We're to enhance the beauty of creation, and we're to bring glory to the creator. And as light, and we're to shine as light for Christ. You know, salt actually has a lot of uses. It used to preserve food before there was refrigeration, but we now pretty much use it to enhance the flavor of food. And we are too, as Christians, to enhance, so to speak, the flavor of the gospel. And I know what you're probably thinking. Well, we, we can't make the gospel palatable for other people. We can't water it down or make it, you know, sound nicer or omit sin. And, and, but that's not what Paul is calling us to do. Using words that are seasoned with salt does not command us to stray from the gospel, but it's to share it in a way that's attractive and leaves listeners just wanting more. You know, we put salt on food that is already good and edible, right? To enhance it. But we do not salt rotten food to make it edible. <laughs> the gospel is good. It is already attractive. It is the best news. I mean, people go from being enemies of God to children of God through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And they can spend eternity in heaven versus eternity in hell. I mean, that is the best news. We just need to communicate it clearly, but also attractively. And the way we do that is to maintain our awe and excitement for the gospel and Jesus. We need to remind ourselves daily, daily, how good the gospel is, how great the gospel is. We have to reflect on our own salvation, our own testimony. I, I did this a lot while prepping for this lesson. I just kept looking back at my testimony and just, you know, how many people God put in my life and he put me in their life because he's working from both ends, guys. He's working from both ends and he's placing people together for his purpose. And I was just like, wow, you brought that person and that person and that situation. I just, my awe of God was just, you know, renewed again in what he'd done even in my own story of salvation. We need to marvel at the love of God. We just need to marvel at the love of God and what he has done for us. We need to go to the Gospels and just read about Jesus over and over and over again and just remember how great Jesus is. Fall in love with the Gospel daily and you won't have to think of pithy words to use to season your speech because your speech will be seasoned with the awe and love of your Savior. It'll already be done. It'll show in your body language, it'll show in your tone, it'll show in just every way that you are communicating. And one person kept coming to mind as I was studying this section. Many of you probably know this person, and she gave me permission to call her out, and that's Stacy Peterson. Uh, I met Stacy Peterson at my very first women's retreat, and we got paired up for the breakfast, you know, where they pair everybody up that doesn't know each other, and she had just repented and put her trust in Christ, I think a few weeks prior. I was still a few months off. 
And she started just telling me about her testimony and just about God and just her love for God and just her enthusiasm and her awe was just, I mean, it was overwhelming. I mean, she was just like, you know, I look at sin now and it's just, it's just disgusting. I'm just disgusted. And I think of, of God and just his love for me and I'm just like, wow, you know? And I'm sitting there and I'm just like, again, like, I, I want that. I want, I want what she has. And I know you're thinking, well, you know, she was just saved. She's on fire for God. We're all on fire for God right after salvation. But the reason I bring Stacy up is because 14, 15 years later, she has that same awe and excitement about God. If you went up and talked to her today, she would have as much, if not more, than she did 14, 15 years ago. And I just love that about her because when you're with her, it's, it's infectious. It's motivating. I mean, you just want to sit and listen to what more she has to say. You want to be around her. So if we want to have seasoned speech, we just have to remain in awe of our Savior and what he's done for us. Well, our last section of verse 6 says, We are to let our speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. If we're walking in wisdom, people will notice, and people may come and ask questions. Uh, they may ask you about your joy, if you are joy amongst a really terrible situation or circumstance. They may ask you about your patience as you're at Target with your unruly toddler. They may come up to you and ask what you're doing as they overhear you taking somebody through partners at a Starbucks. I mean, they're going to ask questions, and we need to be prepared to answer those questions. But before we even utter a word, the first thing we need to do is we need to listen. We need to listen to them. So if we're to use our words wisely, we must also know when to use no words at all. So letter C, use uh, listening to others' words. We need to be listening to others' words. Paul says in verse 6, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You know, each person God places in our path is an individual. They are uniquely created in God's image. They are different than every other person on this earth, and we need to treat them as so and listen to them as so. We need to listen to their questions. We need to listen to their objections. We need to listen to what they agree with as it pertains to the gospel. That's super important, right? There's a foundation we can work with. We need to listen to their concerns, and we need to be watching and listening for their body language. You know, here at Compass, we get the greatest teaching, in my opinion, on earth, <laughs> um, from the pulpit uh, on the weekends. And, you know, a lot of that is, is, it's so great. We have so much knowledge. We have so much Bible knowledge. We have all these extra things we can do. We can go to CBI and take classes and all of this and be filled with all this knowledge, which is so great. We should know about our, our Bibles. We should know about our Lord. But if we steamroll people with that knowledge when we meet them, unfortunately, more often than not, we're wasting the opportunity. We need to not be so eager to just bleh, regurgitate that knowledge, but just listen to the person that we're speaking to and be discerning of which knowledge we need to share with them and when. Well, we also need to have an absence of words and listen um, while listening, right? We need to not have words while we're listening. 
And what I'm talking about here is I'm sure you all have been in this situation, I have too, where you're talking with somebody and they're asking you questions and they're, you know, they're talking and you're, you're formulating your answers and you're formulating what you're going to say next in your head. And these words are going through your head and it's just you have a whole scroll going through your head while they're talking. So ask yourself, are you truly listening to them? No, you're not. Are you truly focused on them? No, you're not. You're focused on yourself. You're focused on what you're going to say, how it's going to sound. So we need to shut down those words that are going on in our heads as we're speaking with other people. We just need to have a care and compassion for them. And this is how we show it, by listening and truly being concerned by what they're saying and giving us them their, our full attention. My only disclaimer for this is that if you're speaking with somebody and you shoot up a prayer to God, go for it, right? Because you shoot up a prayer, Lord, just give me the words, give me the wisdom. Uh, we can do that while speaking to people because, again, God does the savings. The saving, we have to be reliant on him while we're speaking to others to give us those wise words because he ultimately is the God of salvation. Well, newsflash, I did not become an inventor, right? But uh, I kept coming up with ideas, and my last really good idea was in 2006. In 2006, we were on vacation with our best friends from Florida, who we always vacation with, and uh, we were just sitting around, and I don't know why it came to me, but I said, I think I've thought of a really good idea, and it solved a problem, one of my personal problems, of course, and they said, what is it? And I said, well, you know, when I sit on the couch, I always have a blanket because I'm always cold, and, but I, I, I hate how I have to, like, take the blanket off to, like, grab my drink or read a book or change the channel on the TV because then I get cold. My arms are cold. So what I want to invent is this blanket with sleeves like this. And my friend Brad, I'll never forget, he goes, what do you mean, a backwards robe? And I was like, well, kind of, but more like a blanket, you know? And his wife, Melanie, she's like, well, that's actually not a bad idea. And my husband was like, that's actually a good idea. And he's like, we should work on that when we get home. And we have a patent attorney in our, in our family, so he's like, I can, I can call Doug, and we can get this going. I'm like, all right, all right, all right. Well, we got home, and, you know, I drew a few sketches. I kind of dawdled with it a little bit, but life kind of got in the way. I worked full-time, like 80 hours a week at that time, and I got pregnant soon after. We had our first child, and fast forward, it's 2008. I have not made my blanket with sleeves. But we're watching TV, and this ad comes on for the Snuggie. Yeah, so we're watching TV, and this ad comes on, and my husband's jaw drops. He goes, oh, that's your invention. I'm like, I know. And our friends from Florida called us. They go, have you seen this thing, the Snuggie? I'm like, I know, I know, I know, the Snuggie. I know. In the first five years, the Snuggie sold 20 million units for over $500 million. I definitely missed that opportunity. <laughs> that ship has sailed, right? And my husband reminds me of it every so often. He'll bring it up. I'm like, okay. And while we've mourned that uh, what could have been financially, you know, for our family if I had truly pursued that, um, I think how much more as a Christian I should be concerned with the opportunities I might possibly be missing in this life to share Christ with others and just be part of God's plan of salvation. I mean, $500 million dollars, it would have been great, right? But the reward of seeing people in the kingdom one day that I helped to get there by planting a seed or even just modeling a godly life, I mean, that is going to make that $500 million pale in comparison. 
And I hope you'd feel the same. I hope it would motivate you guys all to live wisely and to be prepared to speak with people about Jesus that God places in your path. As Peter, as Peter put it in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. May we all make the best use of this time and use words that glorify the gospel and, Lord willing, be useful in pointing people to their need for Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I just uh, I thank you so much for this group of women who've gathered here this morning to just listen to and hear from your word, Lord. These verses were so packed with wisdom, and I just thank you for them and for the privilege of being able to teach them. And I just pray that we can all walk out of here today motivated to lift our heads, to see the opportunities that you have placed before us, to make the best use of that time, and to watch our speech, ensuring that it is gracious and seasoned with salt, all for the benefit of others and for the glory of your kingdom, Lord. I pray for the discussion time for these women today, that it would be fruitful and encouraging and motivating to fill that bus, as Pastor Mike would say. In Jesus' name, amen.